Please remain standing in honor of God's Word. This morning we're going to look at Acts chapter 5, verses 12 through 42. It's a lengthy section, uh, but it's a great narrative. Acts 5, verses 12 through 42. Now, many signs and wonders were regularly done among the people by the hands of the apostles. And they were all together in Solomon's portico. None of the rest dared join them, but the people held them in high esteem. And more than ever, believers were added to the Lord, multitudes of both men and women, so that they even carried out the sick into the streets and laid them on cots and mats that as Peter came by, at least his shadow might fall on some of them. The people also gathered from the towns around Jerusalem, bringing the sick and those afflicted with unclean spirits, and they were all healed. But the high priest rose up, and all who were with him, that is, the party of the Sadducees, and filled with jealousy, they arrested the apostles and put them in the public prison. But during the night, an angel of the Lord opened the prison doors and brought them out and said, Go and stand in a temple and speak to the people all the words of this life. And when they heard this, they entered the temple at daybreak and began to teach. Now when the high priest came and those who were with him, they called together the council and all the senate of Israel and sent to the prison to have them brought. But when the officers came, they did not find them in the prison. So they returned and reported, We found the prison securely locked and the guards standing at the doors. But when we opened them, we found no one inside. Now when the captain of the temple and the chief priests heard these words, they were greatly perplexed by them, wondering what this could come to. And someone came and told them, Look, the men whom you put in prison are standing in the temple and teaching the people. Then the captain with the officers went and brought them, but not by force, for they were afraid of being stoned by the people. And when they had brought them, they set them before the council. And the high priest questioned them, saying, We strictly charge you not to teach in this name. Yet here you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching, and you intend to bring this man's blood upon us. But Peter and the apostles answered, We must obey God rather than men. The God of our fathers raised Jesus, whom you killed by hanging on a tree. God exalted him at his right hand as leader and savior to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. And we are witnesses of these things, and so is the Holy Spirit, whom God has given to those who obey Him. When they heard this, they were enraged and wanted to kill them. But a Pharisee in the council named Gamaliel, a teacher of the law held in honor by all the people, stood up and gave orders to put the men outside for a little while. And he said to them, Men of Israel, take care what you are about to do to these men. For before these days, Thaddeus rose up, claiming to be somebody, and a number of men, about 400, joined him. He was killed, and all who followed him were dispersed and came to nothing. After him, Judas the Galilean rose up in the days of the census and drew away some of the people after him. He too perished, and all who followed him were scattered. So in the present case, I tell you, keep away from these men and let them alone. For if this plan or this undertaking is of man, it will fail. But if it is of God, you will not be able to overthrow them. You might even be found opposing God. So they took his advice. 
And when they had called in the apostles, they beat them and charged them not to speak in the name of Jesus and let them go. Then they left the presence of the council rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonest for the name. And every day in the temple and from house to house, they did not cease teaching and preaching Jesus as the Christ. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Father, once again, we thank you for the boldness and the courage of the apostles who were determined to obey you rather than man, who would proclaim the good news of salvation in Jesus Christ, regardless of the price that they paid. And tradition tells us that eventually they did pay the ultimate price. They gave their lives for the gospel. Father, may we be inspired by their example. May we be challenged. May we be rebuked for our timidity. Mm -hmm. Father, use this word this morning to change each one of us. Mm -hmm. And we ask these things confidently in Christ's name. Amen. Drink a water. Oh, here, look at that. That's amazing. You may be seated. Somebody snuck it up on me, though. John Piper writes, Life is war. That is not all that it is, but it is that all the time. Day in and day out, we are in a spiritual battle, even if we can't see it with our physical eyes. Have you ever wondered why, as you read through the Gospels, it seems like demon possession and confrontation with demons was taking place every other day? Um, I don't know about you, but that's not my daily, weekly, monthly, or even yearly experience, yet we see that in the life of Christ. Why is that? Because Christ came from heaven to earth to declare war on Satan and his minions, and we see that conflict taking place. And we see it especially in a parable that he told in Mark 3. If you have your Bibles, I'd like you to turn there. Mark 3. And this comes after Jesus cast out a man who was uh, demon-possessed. And this was the rationale given by the religious leaders, Mark 3.22. And the scribes who came down from Jerusalem were saying, He is possessed by Beelzebub, a reference to Satan, and by the prince of demons he cast out demons. And he called them to him and said to them in parables, How can Satan cast out Satan? If a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. And if a house is divided against itself, that house will not be able to stand. And if Satan has risen up against himself and is divided, he cannot stand, but is coming to an end. But no one can enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man. Then indeed he may plunder his house. The strong man is Satan. Uh, Jesus comes into Satan's territory He binds him so that he can plunder his house, setting the captives free, which is what he did all throughout his ministry. But it didn't take place easily. There was constant opposition, not only from the religious leaders, but from the demonic realm as well. 
Now, I think this is important for us to understand because we in America are really experiencing a historical anomaly when it comes to living the Christian life. And when I say historical anomaly, I mean this. Namely, that we think we should just be able to go to church, talk to our friends, neighbors, co-workers about Jesus Christ, and not experience any opposition. But all throughout church history, that wasn't the norm. The norm was opposition, persecution, and conflicts at every single turn. But, as they say, times are a-changing. One story from Christian News that I got off of uh, Larry's Facebook page talks about a pastor in Phoenix, Arizona. Maybe some of you have heard about this pastor. Um, He was incarcerated for his terrible crime. What was his terrible crime? He dared to hold worship services in his house. Uh, The report says the preacher in Phoenix, Arizona was sentenced to 60 days incarceration for holding worship meetings on his private property. Selman had reported to jail on June 17th but was released three hours later after computers at the facility were not recognizing the code that he had purportedly violated. On June 28th, City Judge Sally Gaines rescheduled Selman's sentence for June 9th, vowing that the technicality would be corrected by that date. As previously reported, Selman has been incarcerated for holding private worship gatherings on his property without conforming to commercial code, although he asserts that the meetings he hosts each Sunday are not open to the public. He says that only his family and friends meet in the building behind the residence, which is located on an acre and a half of land, with an additional 3.2 acres behind it. The couple uploaded a video over the weekend outlining the matter in great detail and giving viewers a tour of their property. A neighbor, who is an atheist, also created videos to show that the residence is not problematic to the community. Their crime? Bible studies are not allowed to be conducted in your residence. Here in America, at least in Phoenix, Arizona, it is against the law for Christians to have a Bible study on their property with other Christians. Uh, There's another case that you may have heard of, and this is very recent in the news. Wheaton College, uh, the title says, is suing Obama administration over abortifacient mandates. Wheaton College president Philip Ryken sent a letter to the alumni today to share that the Wheaton College Board of Trustees has filed a lawsuit in opposition to the Patient Protection and Affordable Care Act, which, quote, requires the insurance plans of religious institutions, except churches, to cover all government-approved contraceptives, which includes abortifacients or pay significant fines. Wheaton College is joining the Catholic University of America in this lawsuit because of its concern for both the sanctity of life and religious liberty. So, here we have it in America. Uh, We have the government coming against our convictions, uh, which includes the sanctity of life. Uh, Not just asking, but demanding Uh, that we pay for people to have abortions, uh, i.e. kill children who we love. Uh, We have the government telling us 
more and more, no, it's not your property and you can't do whatever you want. Uh, and friends, I'm going to tell you, and I'm not a gloom and doom person, uh, but if this continues, I really do hate to see where we would be 20 years from now. Uh, because we are going down and we might as well see the trend now because now is when we need the courage and conviction to stand fast. Somebody has to stand up. Somebody has to take action. And we can't just say, well, Wheaton College, they'll take care of it. Or that pastor, he's way over there in Arizona. We're here in Illinois. We have to realize we're in this together. We have to take a stand regardless of what people may think. Now, as we look at our passage this morning, we need to ask, why has Luke recorded what he has recorded? And the question I like to ask each and every week is, why is this particular passage right here? And this morning, I think we can say at the very least, Luke has recorded this passage to show us that the early church had great courage and conviction in the face of persecution. And also to challenge us to be men and women of conviction. And this passage also shows us that the early church thrived in the midst of violent warfare. They didn't just survive, they thrived. They actually grew and prospered. Last week I mentioned to you that Satan's first strategy to destroy the church or to at least diminish its effectiveness was physical persecution. We saw in chapter 4 that they threw Peter and John in, in jail. In this passage, we see that all the apostles probably are thrown in jail, not just Peter and John. And later, we're going to see that beatings and floggings will take place regularly and we will see martyrdom take place as they will give their lives for the Gospel. And we saw that they overcame, or the church overcame this persecution through prayer. They gathered together as a body. They prayed that in the midst of this opposition, God would empower them to be bold. God literally shook the church, filled them anew with the Holy Spirit, and they continued to speak the Word of God boldly. Satan then swiftly moved on to his second strategy to destroy the church, and that was moral corruption. And we saw that last week with Ananias and Sapphira lying to the church leaders, lying to the Holy Spirit. And the early, early church overcame moral corruption in the church through church discipline. And in this case, the church discipline took place by God Himself. God struck down Ananias and Sapphira for their sin. And we mentioned that church discipline normally takes place by the leaders of the church, or sometimes as the church gathered together, but God intervened on this situation and Himself ministered the church discipline by ending their life right there on the spot. Now, following that passage, Luke gives us another snapshot of the church. And I think these different snapshots are important because Luke is showing us that after satanic opposition, when the church responds appropriately, the gospel actually continues on. The church actually continues on. And it flourishes and it grows. This is Luke's description of the church, beginning in verse 12. Now, many signs and wonders were regularly done among the people by the hands of the apostles. 
And they were all together in Solomon's portico. None of the rest dared join them, but the people held them in high esteem. And more than ever, believers were added to the Lord, multitudes of both men and women, so that they even carried out the sick into the streets and laid them on cots and mats, that as Peter came by, at least the shadow might fall on some of them. The people also gathered from the towns around Jerusalem, bringing the sick and those afflicted with unclean spirits, and they were all healed. So the church is continuing to grow and flourish. Just three quick observations from these verses. Of course, there's a lot that could be said, but paradoxically, isn't it fascinating that we're told on the one hand, none of the rest dare join them, but the very next verse says, and more than ever, believers were added to the Lord. So you got people who don't dare join them, but more than ever, people are added to the church. And the church is held in high esteem. And I believe there was great fear. Uh, word of the church discipline had taken place. It probably didn't take long for word to get around. You know what? If you join that church and you violate God's commands, you may not live to walk out of church. They are serious. And then we have the apostles performing miracles. And we often think that miracles just attract people, but not always. Sometimes miracles are scary. Remember when Jesus cast out the demon into the pig and they ran down the hill and were all drowned? They didn't say, wow, this is wonderful. We have a man in our midst who can take care of all the demon possession. They asked him to leave. They didn't want him around. So you have people that are scared of what's taking place in the church. But on the other hand, you have people who are flocking to the church. And I think it's interesting that everybody, regardless of their position, respects the church because the church is functioning as it should. So even if they're not a part of it, isn't it interesting that it says they were held in high esteem? Another observation, and this might be curious to you, it says we're putting people in the street so that even Peter's shadow might fall on them. Now that's interesting. It might seem superstitious at first, uh, but perhaps it's not superstitious at all. Perhaps they understand that the apostles have power. That's very clear. They're performing miracles. And perhaps... It's a result of faith. Remember the woman who was subject to bleeding for 12 years? She said to herself, if I just touch the hem of His garment, I'll be healed. And she did. Touch the hem of His garment. Power went out from Jesus and she was healed. So it could actually be a sign of faith. Maybe this isn't superstitious at all. They're turning to men who they know are godly, walk with God, and have the power to heal. So it could be a sign of faith. And just one more observation. Verse 16, we're told that the people also gather from the towns around Jerusalem. And that is significant because the outline of the book of Acts is found in chapter 1, verse 8, where we're told that the disciples will be witnesses and the gospel will go from Jerusalem to all Judea, Samaria, and the ends of the earth. And here we have the first reference the gospel having an impact on towns outside of Jerusalem. So we're told that the gospel is spreading. It's not only affecting Jerusalem, but it's affecting the towns around Jerusalem. People are coming and they are being healed, they're being delivered, and they're being saved because of the gospel going forth. So the church is thriving in spite of Satan's second 
strategy to destroy the church. But Satan has not given up on his first strategy. Physical persecution is still a reality. And Luke describes it for us. Verse 17, But the high priest rose up, and all who were with him, that is the party of the Sadducees, there's our Sadducees once again, and kids, you may remember that the Sadducees did not believe in the resurrection. That's why they were so sad, you see. Do you recall that? Uh, so they're rising up again um, against the apostles and they are filled with jealousy. That's the problem, plain and simple. All the people are flocking to them, the, that is, the apostles, and not to these Jewish leaders. And frankly, they're just jealous. This is all a result of jealousy. You'll recall that Pilate, although he was a coward, wasn't stupid, and he perceived that they were handing Jesus over to him because of jealousy, because of the big following that he was gaining. And now here the religious leaders are jealous because everybody's flocking to the apostles and they think to themselves, well, we can stop this. Let's just throw them in jail. Verse 18, they arrested the apostles and put them in the public prison. And this may be all the apostles, not just Peter and John here, because verse 29 says, but Peter and the apostles answered. So there's at least Peter and at least two other apostles because it's plural, not singular. So perhaps at this time they're thinking, we've got to stop this. Let's just round up all the apostles and throw them all in prison in order to stop this. Uh, but we're not specifically told how many. And then fascinatingly, verse 19, we're told, but during the night, an angel of the Lord opened the prison doors and brought them out and said, go and stand in the temple and speak to the people all the words of this life. And when they heard this, they entered the temple at daybreak and began to teach. A miraculous uh, deliverance by an angel sent from heaven. God intervenes. Now, here's the question I want to ask. God is intervening for what purpose? Uh, so that the apostles could go back to their homes that evening and catch the rest of the ball game? No. Uh, God intervenes so that they can continue on in their ministry. That's why God intervenes. That's why God answers prayer. And in that quote I gave you earlier by John Piper when he says life is war, he says when we understand that life is war, then we understand the purpose of prayer. Prayer is like a wartime walkie-talkie. And we call our commanding officer and we say we need help so that we can continue on in the mission, so that we can continue on with the Great Commission. Help us in the mission that you have for us. It is not an intercom at the hotel so that we can call for more comforts. Could you send up some more food and drinks? We are at war. And prayer is best understood in the context of war. And God intervenes so that they can continue on with their calling. And that's why God intervenes in our lives. Not just so we can be comfortable and happy, but so we can do what God's calling us to do. And I think every Christian should be able to answer two basic questions. Number one, uh, at what church are you a member? 
every Christian should covenant together with a local body of believers for accountability, prayer, and support. And the second question is, and what ministry are you involved in at that church? Every Christian should be connected to a church through membership and every Christian should be using his or her gifts and passions that God has given them so that the cause of Christ can go forth. And all of us this morning should consider, how am I serving in the body of Christ? Now, I know some of you are new to this church, so you're asking questions about the church and you're wondering what your place might be. Uh, Some of you have been here for a while. And God is challenging you to covenant together with this church. If this is your home church, you need to formally commit yourself to this church. And some of you are a part of the church, but you just come and you go. You come and you go. You need to use your gifts. And if I can borrow a line from JFK, ask not what your church can do for you, but ask what you can do for your church. And I mean that. Too often we say, what can the church do for me? And I'm not saying that's a bad question. I'm I'm really not. That's an okay question. But you should also be asking, and what can I do for the church? How can I play a role in the church? And and I'm not saying it's got to be a major role. I'm not saying you have to be an elder. You have to be a deacon, the head of a ministry. It can be the simplest thing. The simplest thing. Maybe you just have the gifts of help. Great. Great. Bring refreshments. Help clean up. But we need everybody in the body of Christ to do their job. And that's why God intervenes so that the ministry can go forward so that we can continue to serve and build the kingdom. Now, when the Jewish leaders sent for the prisoners, they were in for quite a surprise. Now, when the high priest came and those who were with them, they called together the council and all the Senate of Israel and sent to the prison to have them brought. But when the officers came, they did not find them in the prison. So they returned and reported, We found the prison securely locked and the guards standing at the doors, but when we opened them, we found no one inside. Now when the captain of the temple and the chief priests heard these words, they were greatly perplexed about them, wondering what this could come to. And someone came and told them, Look, the men whom you put in prison are standing in the temple and teaching the people. (laughs) Then the captain with the officers went and brought them, but not by force, for they were afraid of being stoned by the people. Isn't it ironic that we see fearless prisoners and freed religious leaders who are scared to death? And I intentionally use that phrase, scared to death, because they are. What are they afraid of? They're afraid that they will be stoned by the people. (laughs) So here the religious leaders are living in fear and the apostles are living in boldness. Verse 27, And when they had brought them, they set them before the council and the high priest questioned them, saying, We strictly charged you not to teach in this name. Yet here you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching and you intend to bring this man's blood upon us. Notice how they refer to Jesus as this man and then they talk about this man's blood. They can't even say it. 
They can't even verbalize with their lips. Jesus. Jesus. Because here they are, even after having Him crucified, they're still wrestling with Jesus. And now they're challenged by the apostles about His death. Verse 29, But Peter and the apostles answered, We must obey God rather than men. And here they are only reiterating what they had said a short while earlier in Acts 4.19. And let's all know right up front that this is going to be one of the challenges of our generation. Will we obey God rather than men? And we will all be challenged to compromise. We will. Because our family members may not like the stand we take. Our neighbors may not like the stand we take. Our co-workers may not like the stand we take. And, and it's not that we're trying to be hostile. It's not that we're even trying to be confrontative, but people are going to say something and we're going to say, I'm sorry, I cannot disagree. I can, or excuse me, I can't agree with you on that because the Bible is very clear. I'm sorry, I cannot side with you. I have to stand with God. And this is the challenge. And here we have the apostle saying again, I must obey God rather than men. And they continue on. The God of our fathers raised Jesus, whom you killed by hanging on a tree. Don't you love their boldness? These religious leaders already know that the apostles are trying to make them guilty of the death of Christ, but they're still at it. They still will not back down, even though they already know they're going to say it again. Whom you killed by hanging on a tree. God exalted him at his right hand. That refers to the ascension slash enthronement of Jesus Christ. God exalted him for what purpose? To give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sin. The purpose of the exaltation of Jesus Christ is so he could give repentance. What does that imply? Repentance is a gift from God. Let me say it again. Repentance is a gift from God. It's something that God enables us, God empowers us to do, which means it's not something that we're capable of doing by ourselves. Turn ahead to Acts 11, verse 18. When they heard these things, they fell silent and they glorified God saying, then to the Gentiles also God has granted repentance that leads to life. See what they're saying? God grants repentance that leads to life. That's why they're repenting. And just one, one other final passage, 2 Timothy 2, 24-26. And the Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, but kind to everyone, able to teach, patiently enduring evil, correcting his opponents with gentleness, God may perhaps grant them repentance, leading to a knowledge of the truth, and they may escape from the snare of the devil after being captured by him to do his will. So once again, we're to patiently, gently go to our opponents, tell them the truth, hoping and praying that God will grant them repentance. We cannot just repent anytime we want. It's a gift 
from God, which is why it is so important to be open to the Spirit. All throughout the book of Hebrews, we see the refrain, Today, if you hear His voice, do not harden your heart. Today, if you hear His voice, do not harden your heart. So important to be sensitive to the leading of the Spirit. To be sensitive to what God is telling you to do. And many of us have known that God was calling us to do something, but we didn't want to do it. And we were sorry later. I'd like to read another sobering passage from Proverbs 1. And again, this passage reminds us of the importance of listening to wisdom. Proverbs 1, beginning at verse 20. It's lengthy, but I'll just read it to you. Wisdom cries aloud in the streets. In the market, she raises her voice. And we know that Jesus Christ is wisdom personified. At the head of the noisy street, she cries out. At the entrance of the city gate, she speaks. How long, O simple ones, will you love being simple? How long will you scoffers delight in their scoffing and fools hate knowledge? If you turn at my reproof, behold, I will pour out my spirit to you. I will make my words known to you. Because I have called and you refuse to listen, have stretched out my hand and no one has heeded, because you have ignored all my counsel and would have none of my reproof, I also will laugh at your calamity. I will mock when terror strikes you, when terror strikes you like a storm, and your calamity comes like a whirlwind when distress and anguish come upon you. Then they will call upon me, but I will not answer. They will seek me diligently, but will not find me, because they hated knowledge and did not choose the fear of the Lord, would have none of my counsel, and despise all my reproof. Therefore, they shall eat the, fruit, eat the fruit of their way and have their fill of their own devices. For the simple are killed by their turning away and the complacency of fools destroys them. But whoever listens to me will dwell secure and will be at ease without dread of disaster. So important to listen to wisdom, to listen to God when He speaks and not presume that later I can call out and God will answer whenever I want Him to. You may call out later. He may. He may not answer. But we cannot just presume that He will. Jesus Christ is exalted so that He can give repentance. So that He can give forgiveness of sin. So that He can give us life. This is a gift of God. That's why when we come to saving faith in Jesus Christ, He gets all the glory. We realize that even if I repent, even if I put my faith in Jesus Christ, that's all because of Him. That's all because of His grace. I could have done none of that on my own. And He gets all the glory. And it's because of the exaltation of Jesus Christ. He's ruling. He's reigning so that things are transformed on earth. And because of that exaltation, He begins with Israel and then He goes to the Gentiles. Verse 32, they continue on, and we are witnesses to these things, and so is the Holy Spirit, whom God has given to those who obey Him. When they heard this, they were enraged and wanted to kill them. Not everybody likes the truth. They're giving them the truth. And they hate the apostles. They hate them. Maybe you've heard the saying, the same son that softens the wax, hardens the clay. That's like the truth of God's Word. It goes out. Some people are hardened. 
Some people are softened. It has the same, or excuse me, it has different effects on different people. But you can count on this. It does have an effect. People do respond. Well, after this, um, a Pharisee steps forward, Gamaliel, and he has some counsel. We read in 33, or excuse me, 34. But a Pharisee in the council named Gamaliel, a teacher of the law, held in honor by all the people, stood up and gave orders to put the men outside for a little while. And he said to them, Men of Israel, take care what you are about to do to these men. For before these days, Thaddeus stood up, claiming to be somebody, a number of men, about 400, joined him. He was killed, and all who followed him were dispersed and came to nothing. After him, Judas the Galilean rose up in the days of the census and drew away some of the people after him. He too perished, and all who followed him were scattered. So he gives a couple of examples of men who had great influence and a great following, but after he was killed, it, it all came to naught. And he says, So in the present case, I tell you, keep away from these men and let them alone. For if this plan or this undertaking is of man, it will fail. But if it is of God, and it's interesting that he says this. I think he had a sneaking suspicion that it was. But if it is of God, you will not be able to overthrow them. You might even be found opposing God. Uh, generally speaking, uh, Gamaliel is right. And I say generally speaking because there are exceptions. Uh, sometimes religious leaders arise, they die, but the following does continue. Uh, Mormonism, Islam. Uh, so there are exceptions to this general rule. And sometimes the things of God don't continue on. Sometimes God works mightily with a certain church or ministry or organization, but it doesn't last over time. Sometimes it goes liberal. Sometimes it completely turns away and apostatizes. Uh, but generally speaking... And Gamaliel is looking at the apostles and he's saying, if they're just doing this on their own, it's not going to last. But if God is in this, you might even be finding yourself opposing God. And again, I can't say for sure, but it's interesting that he says this because I think he saw the power that was taking place in what they were doing. Verse 40, And when they had called in the apostles, they beat them and charged them not to speak in the name of Jesus and let them go. Now, some of your translations at this point may not read beat. It may read flogged. And before we move on, I want to be real clear about what has probably happened here. Uh, the apostles have probably received what is commonly known as the 40 lashes minus one. The 40 lashes minus one. And let me give you a couple of examples. 2 Corinthians 11. And I'm just going to give you one verse where Paul mentions this. 1 Corinthians 11.24. Paul, 2 Corinthians, I'm sorry, thank you. 2 Corinthians 11.24. It's a passage in which Paul is describing all that he's been through. Uh, he feels foolish doing it. Uh, but he's been forced to do it so he can give his credentials as an apostle. And he mentions all that he has undergone. In verse 24, he says, Five times I received at the hands of the Jews the forty lashes less one. Five times for Paul. 
40 lashes. He was flogged on five different occasions. And you know that's where he's laid out flat. His back is probably over a stone or something. And they take a whip. It might have had steel balls on the end. Maybe it had glass within the leather straps. Took it over his back and just ripped it off the back so that his back literally had stripes. That's what happened to Jesus Christ. We're told that by his stripes we are healed. The stripes came about uh, because of the flogging that he went through. Uh, here is Paul saying, I received that five times by the hands of the Jews. And the apostles on this occasion are probably receiving the 40 lashes minus one as well. Where did the 40 lashes minus one come from? Deuteronomy 25. Deuteronomy 25, beginning at verse 1. This is what the law states. If there is a dispute between men and they come into the courts, and the judges decide between them, and that's what's happening in Acts. They're coming to the courts. Judgment is taking place. Acquitting the innocent and condemning the guilty. Then, if the guilty man deserves to be beaten, the judge shall cause him to lie down and be beaten in his presence with a number of stripes in proportion to his offense. Verse 3. Forty stripes may be given but not more, lest if one should go on to beat him with more stripes than these, your brother be degraded in your sight. So, the law could state that if a person was guilty of a crime and they deserved to be beaten, they could be beaten up to 40 times, but no more. Where does the minus one come in? The minus one comes in from the religious leader's strict adherence to the wall, or excuse me, to the law. They were afraid that if they had miscounted and they gave 41 beatings instead of 40, they would be violating the law. So they gave 40 lashes minus one to be very careful that they were within the law, that they could punish as much as they wanted, but no more and violate the law. And most likely they had uh, beaten the apostles, flogged them as much as possible because they are very disturbed by what is taking place here. Now, I wanted to make it very clear what the apostles went through on this occasion so that we can appreciate their response. And what is their response? Verse 41, Then they, referring to the apostles, left the presence of the council rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonest for the name. Here we have the apostles beaten. Probably 40 lashes minus one for teaching and preaching in the name of Jesus Christ. And they leave probably barely able to walk because of what they had just endured. And they are overflowing with joy. They are singing praises to God. This is wonderful, they're saying to one another. Now, why would these men be rejoicing over a beating that they just endured? Let me give you three reasons. Number one, because of the fellowship that comes from sharing in His sufferings. Remember Paul's prayer? I want to know Christ, the power of His resurrection, and the fellowship of sharing in His sufferings. There is a fellowship that you cannot describe to other believers that you can only experience that comes from sharing in His sufferings. Now, I, I experienced this a while back, just very tiny proportion to what the apostles did. So I'm not comparing myself, okay? Just 
tiny little experiences. I remember being a new believer, doing something very difficult um, that I believe God wanted me to do, and I was just scolded by another believer. I mean, I was just ripped up one side, down the other. And I remember just shortly after leaving their presence, skipping, floating on air. I, I was just filled with joy. Everybody I talked to, how are you doing? This is a great day. It's wonderful. And, and here's why I remember. It wasn't a big deal, but I remember because the joy that flooded in my heart was so overwhelming, I couldn't help but take notice. It was more than just, well, God, I'm doing what God's calling me to. I was just, I was overwhelmed by the joy in, God, in God's presence. And this is what God does. In a little while, we're going to see the, st- the stoning of Stephen. And we're going to see Jesus Christ manifest His presence to Stephen in this time. And he's going to be filled with joy because of God's presence. I think they experienced fellowship with Jesus Christ like never before on this occasion. And it filled them with joy. Another reason why they're filled with joy. What did Jesus say? Rejoice and be glad when men speak evil of you on my account. When you're persecuted for my sake, because great is your reward in heaven. For so they treated the prophets who were before you. They knew we're going to be rewarded. There are rewards waiting for us because of what we endure. Let's rejoice and be glad like Jesus told us to. And they did. They rejoiced. And they were glad. But, based on the specific wording of the text, I think what brought them joy more than anything else is that they were counted worthy to suffer. Look at verse 41 very closely. And they left the presence of the council rejoicing. Why? That they were counted worthy to suffer dishonest for the name. They were worthy of the privilege of being beaten for Jesus Christ. And I'll never forget Joseph's son, Romanian pastor under communism, pointing this out. Saying, not everybody is worthy to suffer for Jesus Christ. The apostles are rejoicing because they were counted worthy They were saying to one another, Jesus has found us worthy to be among those who are suffering for His name. What a privilege! This is amazing! And that really is. This is what Joseph Son wrote in his book, Suffering Martyrdom and the Rewards of Heaven. In regard to this suffering, he said, one had to be found worthy of it. Suffering was not for everybody since it was only given to a select number of people chosen by God, being among the people especially honored by God, to suffer for His name was a reason for great rejoicing indeed. The apostles did not return to the church complaining and soliciting pity. They went to report the joyful news. They had been counted worthy by their Lord to suffer in dignity for His name. They were among the chosen ones. What a privilege. What a privilege. Every once in a while, people say, aren't you afraid of suffering martyrdom for Christ? And I say, no, I'm not. I'm not worthy of such a privilege. I'm not worthy. Maybe someday I could rise to such worthiness, but I doubt it. But these men right here, 
counted worthy to suffer for the name, and they were counted worthy not just to suffer for the name, but to give their lives for Jesus Christ. They were among the chosen ones for martyrdom. What privilege. What an honor to give your very life for Jesus Christ. To give everything. They received the privilege. Is it any wonder that they went back to the church skipping and praising God that such an honor would be theirs? And every day in the temple and from house to house, they did not cease teaching and preaching Jesus as the Christ. Jesus as the Messiah, as God's anointed, as God's Savior, man's only hope of salvation. They did not cease. They didn't stop. They didn't stop. They continued right on. God was with them. God empowered them. God filled them with joy. And, and I only wonder if people said, I, I have never seen people filled with such joy like these apostles. Absolutely amazing how happy these guys are. Where does this joy come from? It comes from the abiding presence of the Holy Spirit when you walk in obedience and you're counted worthy. What a privilege. May we be counted worthy even in small ways to suffer. And we all will suffer varying degrees. Paul made that clear in 2 Timothy. All who desire to live godly lives in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. It's just a matter to what degree. But may we be found faithful when we are tempted to compromise. May we not compromise. May we be found faithful. May we obey God rather than men. May we be found worthy to suffer disgrace for the name, whatever level of suffering that may entail. Let's close in prayer.